Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today we conclude a special week of Access Utah. It's the best of. And uh, quite frankly, we're looking for your money. And that's why we're, we're putting our best foot forward, uh, essentially saying, hey, do you like Access Utah? And, uh, and give us some support. We'll talk to you about that part in about 10 minutes. Uh, today we are, and uh, all week we've been doing themes. And so we uh, started with public lands and heard from Terry Tempest Williams and some others. On Tuesday, it was fun and music. Lynn McNeil joined me in studio, and uh, we had some uh, interesting episodes, including uh, an excerpt from an episode from, with Rita Moreno. And uh, then yesterday, it was books. We had Elaine Thatcher and Scott Hammond in. We talked about, in part, uh, Scott Hammond's wonderful book, Lessons of the Lost. We also uh, heard some uh, music from Hamilton. The musical talked with uh, Ron Chernow, author of the biography, Alexander Hamilton. Today... Race in America. We have done several uh, episodes on uh, this issue, very important ongoing issue. And uh, we have uh, with us in studio Jason Gilmore, who's a communications professor. Uh, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. And you've been involved in a couple of these episodes. Um, Indeed, yeah. It, it, at least in the preparation of them, but we also hosted one together, so it's uh, it's been good that we've been covering this issue. Yeah, well, thank you for coming in. And Ted Twinding joins us. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Tom. We are later in the hour going to hear from Sherman Alexie. Uh, that was a, a fun, uh, lively conversation. I don't think you could have a conversation with Sherman Alexie that wasn't lively. <laughs> and we'll hear a portion of that. Uh, we'll also hear from a gentleman with Black Lives Matter Charleston when those horrible shootings uh, happened. Uh, we, we reached him, along with the Reverend France Davis. We also had Jason Gilmer on that program. Uh, we'll begin with uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones. I read this in Politico. This is the, I guess, the advantage of having a, some some airtime, having a, a show. <laughs> you read something interesting, and and you can reach out and get this person on the show. Um, and so, uh, ProPublica reporter Nicole Hannah Jones, publishing in ProPublica and Politico, she uh, recounted an incident while she was on an outing to Long Island with some of her friends. Um, and we'll hear about that. And uh, she wrote a letter from Black America. Very interesting. So let's hear this. Uh, you moved from Portland to New York, and you chose your home in, in Brooklyn in part because it was near a police precinct. Yes, I mean, I think when people move from one place to another, and particularly to uh, a very big city like, like New York, uh, you want to make sure that you're moving into a safe area. And um, I thought having a police precinct around the corner would mean that uh, there would be less likely to be crime where I moved. And, th- and then the, the, the officers got shot, and unfortunately, and, and killed there. And uh, tell me what you, what you did. So, of, of course, a, a mentally ill man who had shot his girlfriend in Baltimore and then came up to New York and um, ambushed and killed two police officers. That that killing actually happened uh, just a couple blocks from my house, and those officers were working out of the precinct that's right around the corner from me. And like most or nearly all Americans, I'm sure I was, I was deeply troubled by that. I'm deeply troubled when anyone is killed, and I was thinking a lot about those officers. So my husband and I took some food um, and some flowers to the precinct, and um, as is fairly typical in that precinct, we weren't greeted when we came in, and um, we told the the officer at the desk that we were here to drop off the food and the flowers and, and our condolences, which seemed to disarm him a bit. Um, he thanked us for them, and, and we left. But um, then the next day, I drove by the precinct, and they had um, armed guards out front, uh, really police snipers with large assault weapons. They had barricaded off the precinct. Um, it was frightening to my daughter, and, and you just there was just a sense that um, they, they believed they were in enemy turf and that they didn't believe that they were uh, there to be with the community, but that there was fear of the community. Hmm. Yeah, there's a the sense of, uh, you know, you, you broke down a barrier in a sense, but then, then it went right back up. Right. Uh, so I wonder, uh, let me just quote you again from your article. Uh, you say since 1935, and you're, you're quoting uh, someone else here, I think, uh, nearly every so-called race riot in the United States, and there have been more than 100, has been sparked by a police incident. 
uh, and this can be an act of brutality or senseless killing, but the underlying causes run much deeper. And, and you go on to say police, because they interact with black communities every day, are often seen as the face of larger systems of inequality in the justice system, employment, education, uh, housing. Um, so I, I suppose you would say that these uh, these unfortunate incidents we're seeing, uh, that that is tip of the iceberg. That that's Those are indications. Those are symptoms of a larger problem. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you can look at any statistic of well-being in this country, and black Americans are at the bottom of those statistics. Um, Often policing is happening in highly segregated neighborhoods, neighborhoods that have been cut off from many resources that have poor city services, and police are often the only um, public officials that communities are interacting with on a daily basis. And the sense is that, um, and, and there's some truth to this, that the police are there kind of acting on behalf of, of different agents to control the population, that there's a sense that black communities are, are communities that need to be controlled, that these communities overall are criminal. And so there's a great deal of tension, but it's also a physical interaction. So you can't see on a daily basis the people who make decisions that lead to segregated schools or the people who make decisions that don't uh, put development in poor black communities. But you do see on a daily basis police, and that contact can often be physical. And I think because of that, it it makes the contact between police and these communities very combustible. We have received a couple of questions from a a listener who wants to remain anonymous. Very interesting questions, I thought. Um, So let me address this one to uh, Kathy Abarca first. Um, so this, this listener says, many white people are afraid to talk about race because they fear they'll be called out or blamed. How can we make the discussion on race more inclusive of all perspectives and experiences? Mm-hmm. I think that's a, a good and sincere sentiment that, you know, it's, it's a scary conversation to have. It's a complex and hard conversation to have. Um, however, it, it, it needs to be done. Uh, for many people of color, the situation is, is an urgent situation. You go out and you have to carry with you a sense of fear, you know, um, am I going to be pulled over today for such and such? Uh, when I go to the grocery store today, am I going to be looked suspiciously because I put my hands in my pockets? And so I feel like it, those sort of motivations, uh, if you don't already have friends of color, to kind of seek out those environments to get a sense of how urgent the situation is. And then also to be honest and to and to seek out those conversations because they, they're very necessary. And um, the path to being a, a good white ally, it, it, it's, a, it's a long one. It's a lifelong one. And uh, it, it, take, it takes a lot of work. So to know that also up front, that it, it, it's a lifelong process, too, to being a, a good white ally and to being able to have these conversations and um, to... You know, able to advocate and be in solidarity with um, communities of color. Nicole Hannah Jones, I guess, is a similar question to, to you. Is it what, what what needs to be done, do you think? It, does it start with a conversation? What what do you think? Well I think I think the problem is often the framing. The framing is a conversation about race, but the framing needs to be a conversation about racism. And I think the conversations always tend to be very personal, but the issues are structural. Um, it's not whether an individual person holds racial animus or not, or is a good person or not. It's about structural issues. What happened in Ferguson was structural. You had an entire system of law enforcement that was basing revenue on the harassment and often unconstitutional uh, violations of its black citizenry. So I think that's the problem, is we, we want to talk about race and as if it's an individual issue and not talk about racism as a structural issue. Hmm. When you do that, it takes away these feelings of, is someone going to call me racist, and really looks at, at the system. So th- th- this gets to a, a, our, our, our listener has a, th- this question. I think you've answered this in part. Uh, they say the words racism and racist seem to be thrown aw- around quite a bit when discussing race relations, and uh, they're asking you to help us understand what the definition of racism is, what is and what isn't racism. I mean, I, I don't know that there is one textbook definition. Uh, I think if, if, you, if people actually read the Ferguson report, it's very clear that um, 
the, the policies were implemented against black people and that there was racial animus. Um, when you look at the emails where they were openly making racist jokes um, against black Americans, where they were, they were saying that black Americans were criminal as a group. Um, but I think we don't need to get caught up in, in definitions. You can look at a policy, and if it's disproportionately harming one group or another, then that's a policy that we need to address. Um, we often get caught up in what's the intent. Did someone intend to hurt someone? I think what matters more is do policies or do actions hurt people, and then, or excuse me, then it doesn't matter what the intent was. I don't think we need to worry about so much whether we can call someone racist or not or we can name a certain behavior as racist or not. I think it's, it's actually what are the impacts of that behavior um, that are, that's the critical question. What, so you've talked about uh, structural problems. Um, you mentioned several. How would you prioritize those in terms of what, what we need to work on? Uh, that's, that's a hard question. Um, I, think, I think much smarter people who are paid to analyze these <laughs> things than me would be the one to answer that, yeah. because how do you prioritize? One is dealing with kind of the physical safety of people. Other issues are dealing with educational opportunity, health, um, jobs. I, I don't know how, how you prioritize any one of those over another. Uh, let me ask you, um, it, you, you work on, uh, I think, reporting on housing, right? Well, that's one part of your beat. That's one of the areas. I, I cover civil rights, and I've, I focus largely on housing and school segregation. Yeah. So let me ask, ask you about, about housing. Is, uh, you know, the, the federal laws now prevent intentional segregation? Are those being followed? What, do, you well, know, do, we, do we have continuing the federal problems? laws prohibit uh, intentional segregation, but I, I did a year-and-a-half investigation that showed the federal government and actually most local governments are doing very little to enforce the Fair Housing Act. So our, our civil rights laws are actually pretty good. The enforcement is what's lacking, and the will to enforce the laws are what's lacking. Um, so I think you can look at any number of policies, such as where communities put affordable housing, how communities zone, um, how communities enforce housing code, and you can see that um, practices are definitely happening that reinforce segregation, but there's very little will to actually do something about it. That's Nicole Hannah-Jones. She's a reporter with ProPublica, and uh, she wrote a very interesting piece in uh, Politico last year called Letter from Black America. We talked with her. We also You also heard from uh, Kathy Abarca there. She was on the program, a racial justice associate with ACLU Utah and a member of Racially Just Utah. Coming up, we're going to have excerpts from my conversations with Sherman Alexie, and we'll also hear... Uh, from a program we did uh, later in 2015, responding to the uh, the shootings in uh, Charleston. And we'll hear from Muhyiddin Dabaka, an organizer with Black Lives Matter Charleston. Uh, in studio, we have uh, Ted Twenting and uh, Jason Gilmore. Uh, so, uh, gentlemen, uh, thanks for being here. Uh, this We have the theme of uh, race issues uh, on the program today. The, this is just uh, some of the issues that we cover on Access Utah. We try to be very responsive to uh, community issues and uh, go deep into fascinating ideas, tell compelling stories, and uh, hopefully this is uh, programming worth supporting. Indeed. I think uh, at the end of the day, if your radio station is covering things that should have been covered 10, 15 years ago, uh, then maybe you shouldn't support it, right? But if it is covering the quintessential uh stories of the day, the things that affect us uh, at a deep national level, uh, then, then you, know it's doing, you know it's doing its job, right? Um, and, and as we heard in that segment, uh, some of these conversations are difficult, uh, you know, difficult at the national level, at the local level, uh, but they're worth having, right? And I think that was the sentiment that came out of that. So the fact that uh, Utah Public Radio is actually at the forefront of having those conversations, of reaching out to those people, uh, is an incredible uh, contribution. And, you know, one thing I really liked was um, in response to one of our callers, so somebody who was listening to the show and called in to actively participate, uh, Miss Hannah Jones said that it's not 
about whether a person exhibits a racial animus or not, or whether or not this person is a good person. It's about systemic change. And so to be able to not only read that article in such amazing places like Politico or uh, ProPublica, but be able to speak with that individual and find that sort of nuanced conversation. And I really believe that it's that nuanced conversation that public radio excels at. It's something that we bring to the state of Utah. Uh, and as you know, we're across the entire state. So whether you're in St. George, whether you're in Logan, Moab, Cedar City, you can call in and dial in on that conversation. And uh, p- part of the impulse here, um, Nicole Hannah-Jones is a perfect example. Part of the impulse, uh, why I want to put uh, some of these issues on, is that I don't have the understanding that I want. And I'm, I'm reaching out for understanding. And the, the reason that Nicole Hannah-Jones's piece hit me so hard um, was that the story, which I, I thought was going to be in the in the piece, so, so we'll, we'll tell it here. Um, she said on July 4th, last July, so this would have been 2014, on an outing to Long Island, these are upper-middle-class African-Americans of uh, various generations. Nicole Hannah-Jones is, I think, maybe in her 40s, perhaps, mm-hmm. but they had some younger people with them. Shots were fired in the vicinity. Yep. And uh, Ms. Uh, Hannah-Jones recounts how uh, the generational divide and the response to those uh, shots was very telling. Mm-hmm. One of the younger people in their group called the police. And the when, when the older people in the group learned that, they said, I don't know whether you should have done that. Yeah. And the younger person learned why, Immediately, the police turned on her, and were suspicious of her. Mm-hmm. And she was, and she had grown up, I think, in the West, and so had not in in a kind of a different uh, area. These are experiences most of us in the white community have not had. Sure, I think one of the things that she said in response to that, and I I study global communication, international, intercultural scenarios. Uh, the one thing that she said in that piece that really was compelling was uh, the idea that. Um, Speaking, this is, again, a letter from black America, perhaps to white America or the rest of America. She says, um, I don't think you and I grew up in the same country. Mm. We occupied the same physical spaces, uh, but we have experienced this country in very different ways, uh, which I found incredibly compelling. And that story really speaks to that. Yeah. Uh, so these are uh, issues that uh, that we uh, try to bring up and, and treat. They're very important community issues and representative of other. I mean, we, we do public lands. We do uh, books. Uh, uh, we have uh, treated many other uh, issues, and uh, we've had some wonderful discussions. I'm always impressed with the discussions that we get going with with our listeners. I think that that impulse toward education and wanting to understand is is very deep in, in public radio. Uh, public radio does not, uh, of course, the other side of that coin is public radio does not work without public support. And you can show your support uh, calling 800-826-1495. I'd like to suggest perhaps a uh, the first-time donation, somebody who's never donated before. Take that step. Uh, if this conversation spoke to you and it's the sort of nuanced conversation that you would like to continue to have, give us a call for $3 a month or $36 a year. You can have an introductory membership and help support these kind of conversations. Again, that number is 800-826-1495 or online at upr.org. UPR.org is the place to go, UPR.org, or uh, 800-826-1495. Um, we're going to go to the next segment very shortly. Jason, I wonder, um, I always ask people, there's usually a lag between when you discover public radio and when you start supporting it, become, mm-hmm. a, become a member. It, it, it takes a while for that message to sink in. I wonder if there was such a lag for you, and then what was the message that resonated? I think what it comes down to is that um, I don't think people – immediately understand that this is a public service and that their contribution to it is a contribution to public service. But I think those of us who have been saturated in the the kind of overly biased media market of the Fox Newses and the MSNBCs and everything in between, um, then we really understand the value of a station like Utah Public Radio, National Public Radio, that uh, is really trying uh, to get all of the perspectives, right? Really trying to represent people and their perspectives on stories. So it makes it incredibly valuable. Um, so I think it's when, for me, when I, uh, when I understood that, right, that this was a public service uh, and that it was in my, it was actually, to a certain extent, defending my own um, my own access to information and balanced information um, that uh, that brings you around or should bring you around. Mm-hmm. 
And we hope, we hope, you. <laughs> uh, so, Ted, the, the, the contact points, how do people get a hold of us? 800-826-1495 or online at upr.org. We're going to take a break. Um, uh, when we come back, we're going to hear from, uh, in the aftermath of the Charleston shootings, we talked with the Reverend France Davis, pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in Salt Lake City. We talked with Muhyiddin Debacha, the organizer of Black Lives Matter Charleston, and we talked with Jason Gilmore at that point. We'll hear a portion of that conversation later in the, in the hour. We'll hear from Sherman Alexi. More following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah State University Alumni Association, celebrating Homecoming Week with the Homecoming 5K, Saturday, September 24th. Information at usu.edu slash homecoming. Hey, this is Guy Raz, host of the TED Radio Hour, as heard on Utah Public Radio on Mondays at 10 a.m. As you know, public radio is a truly amazing mix of local, national, and international collaboration. Through your investments of time and money, you make this type of programming accessible to yourself as well as to people across the state of Utah. Without your local support, the national and international parts cannot work. So please, call 800-826-1495 to speak with one of your fellow listeners, show your support, and make it happen. Thank you, and now back to your on-air friends. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're doing Best of Access Utah, and we're concluding a special week of Best of Programs. Today, our theme is Race in America. We heard uh, uh, previously there from uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, reporter with ProPublica, and uh, from Kathy Abarca, racial justice associate with ACL Utah and member of Racially Just Utah. That was from March of 2015. Uh, then, of course, you recall uh, later that year in uh, July, or leading up to, to that, we had the, the horrible shootings there, and uh, we reached out to the Reverend France Davis, uh, from Salt Lake, who has uh, who who marched in the, the you know civil rights he's he's uh, marches he he's been there. Uh, we reached out to Jason Gilmore, who joins us here, and we uh, reached out to a gentleman, a young gentleman, uh, an organizer with Black Lives Matter Charleston, Muhyiddin Debacha. And uh, so let's hear part of this conversation. I think we're going to start out hearing from uh, Mr. Debacha. Perhaps with today's technology, maybe a little easier to detect, go out and find find these people and try to engage. Most definitely. Well, the way that we approach white supremacy, again, it's a system of belief that there's black inferiority and white superiority. And so if you read some of the articles of the Confederation, uh, it talks about how there is a subordinate group of human race that is supposed to be subjugated into slavery because of their inferior being. To understand that, that's the attitude that has been infiltrated and, and has really uh, seeped into a lot of our social institutions. It has not changed, not one bit. We've created policies to try to alter that, but it doesn't alter the attitude when, in effect, the communities are still experiencing black inferiority and white superiority. And so we don't look at white supremacy uh, as... Um, uh, people that have to have white skin, our European background. We look at white supremacy as people that believe in white superiority and black inferiority. And so there are people of African descent that have taken on white supremacy belief without that understanding. And so the depth at which we're doing our work within those kind of conversation circles uh, concerns uh, an ideological attitude more so than a person that is uh, subscribing to a particular um, belief in a, in a symbol. Really? So you've encountered people of African descent who have taken on some of these beliefs? That's, 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 that's depressing. Well, white, white, white supremacy is, it works in such a way that black people will feel inferior white people because they were taught that mm. for so long. Okay. So if you take something like the talk that is had um, as we are growing up, where our parents might tell us, this is how you act when the police is pulling you over, this is how you talk when you go to school, this is how you adjust your being in order to accommodate um, a, a white overseer or the white overseer culture. Mm. And so unfortunately, it's something that is so indoctrinated, it's so subtle that a lot of us are carrying the black inferiority and the white superiority complex within ourselves. We have not moved uh, along 
uh, fast enough in our culture to keep up with the wording of our policy. I see. I see what you're saying. Yeah, I understand uh, better now. Let me turn back to uh, uh, Jason Gilmore. Uh, first of all, your your general reaction to what we've said so far, and then I'll invite you to uh, to pose a question or two to our our guests. Um. So yeah, I'm I'm quite intrigued um, by this idea of a worldview that's perpetuated uh, quite a bit by the symbols um, that are dominant around the culture, especially in the South. Um, the South definitely kind of keeps coming out as this kind of example of of uh, where we can really see these these explicit and not implicit uh, expressions of racism and whatnot. Uh, but I, I actually, one thing that I'm, I'm quite intrigued about is that now we have the, the discussion about whether we should take down the Confederate flag from uh, the Capitol grounds. Um, but we were in Selma, Alabama this past year, and the bridge that is marched across is the Edmund Pettus Bridge, named after a grand uh, dragon of the Alabama KKK. Um, and there's this discussion, and maybe I'll pose this to the, the two guests, is there's this discussion about do we take down these symbols or do we leave them there as, uh, you know, something as an educational point so that, um, you know, we learn from this so that it doesn't happen again. But there's that kind of interplay about whether these, the fact that these symbols, the, the naming of the streets after Confederate soldiers and generals, um, whether that's perpetuating these ideas and these worldviews, uh, or whether they can be used as educational uh, points. And I guess I'll pose that to Mr. DeBaha to begin with, considering you're down there now. Um, so how do you address the fact that, A, there's the flag on the, the, the capital of South Carolina, but the Georgia flag uh, is modeled after the first flag of the Confederacy. Uh, the Mississippi flag still has... Uh, the Confederate battle flag in, ingrained. How do you address the the multitude of symbols uh, that are going on that are you know just kind of so evident uh, in society down there? Well, there's there's an educational process, of course, um, and then there's the the reality that we have to speak of today. And so the the phrase that we come up against a lot is it's heritage and it's not hate, and it is in fact heritage for some people but that heritage has hate within it, and that hate was not um, explicitly stated. It was actually stated as fact. There's Alexander Stevens. He was the vice president of the Confederate States of America, and in his cornerstone speech, uh, he said, Our new government, its foundations is laid upon, its cornerstones rest upon the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man, that slavery so subordination to the superior race is his natural and normal condition. This is our new government. This is the first in the history of the world based upon this great physical, philosophical, and moral truth. And so we have to understand that these symbols uh, represent this understanding. These are the great forefathers of the Confederacy that held this belief that created these symbols and flags. I would venture to guess, though, uh, unfortunately, that more perhaps with today's technology. And uh, it's a portion of our uh, conversation on Access Utah from uh, July of uh, 2015. And we uh, talked there uh, with uh, the Reverend Franz Davis, pastor at Calvary Baptist Church in Salt Lake City. Uh, we also were talking there with Muhyiddin Debaha, organizer with Black Lives Matter Charleston, and with Jason Gilmore, uh, who is in the communication department at Utah State University. Jason Gilmore joins me in studio for this special edition of the program, and we have with us uh, Ted Twenting um, as well. Um, and uh, th these uh, conversations, I think, are, are very important uh, uh, to have, Jason Gilmore. Indeed. Um, right now is... Uh is a, an interesting time in our country where um, conversations about race or as, um, as was stated in the piece, uh, conversations about uh, racial prejudice, inequalities uh, have come to the fore. So uh, it's, 
it's a courageous moment, I think, for all of us uh, to want to come to the to the table and say we want to have this conversation because we care about our communities, right? Uh, because we care about across racial lines, because we we care that we advance as a nation. So I think this is these are incredibly important conversations to have. And um, I can't remember who what, who it was in the pieces that said it. These conversations are not easy. Right. Yeah. Uh, we bring ourselves to the table and everything that we come from. Uh, but that courageous moment of coming to the table is actually what counts. Uh, so, yeah, it's great that we're having these conversations here at Utah Public Radio for sure. And uh, Ted, before we go to you, I, I wanted to uh, do some behind the scenes. Uh, but people may not know this. Um, so uh, my uh, former producer, Bennett Purser, was driving for us behind this, uh, this program. And uh, I had the idea of reaching out to the Reverend Davis. Um, for kind of a historical perspective. And uh, Bennett said, we, we need to get somebody from Black Lives Matter Charleston. And uh, and that was kind of hard to do. Uh, at least at that point, they didn't have a website. Sure. It, was, it was very nascent, you know. And, and uh, uh, Bennett somehow, I think through Twitter, got a hold of uh, Mr. DeBaja and convinced him to come on. <laughs> and, uh, and, and we needed his perspective. Indeed. Uh, and uh, so then later on... Um, Somebody, I think, from the New Yorker magazine, I believe it was the New Yorker, called me. And uh, they wanted to get hold of Mr. DeBach for a piece <laughs> they were doing. They noticed that we had done a piece, and they had also noticed that it's kind of hard to get a hold of uh, someone from Black Lives Matter Charleston, at least at that point. I don't know, maybe they've beefed up their outreach, uh, you know, their their contact points at this point. Uh, so I, I pointed that person to Bennett, and they I think they got... Uh, Mr. DeBaca connected up with the New Yorker magazine. Um, that's just uh, some behind the scenes to indicate that it's it's not always easy to 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 get the people that you want. But definitely, we needed Muhyiddin DeBaca on, on that conversation. Bennett was able to make that happen. And you know, Tom Bennett is uh, is great in everything he touches, everything he does. And one thing I love is that Bennett is, is actually a student right here at USU. Uh, he came in. He started working with you. He he rose. He became very prominent. And now we have another right crack set of students here to help you with Access Utah. Uh, Jason, I believe you took some students all across the country and to other countries to talk about issues like this. Uh, could you tell us a little more about that? Yeah, so uh, I've had the great benefit um, and honor of working with Utah Public Radio. Um, I came just a couple of years ago to pitch the idea that we might uh, bring some some public radio uh, microphones on the bus with us um, on a civil rights pilgrimage uh, that I do, taking two students along with 50-plus uh, others from the Seattle area on a nine-day pilgrimage throughout the Deep South. Um, and Utah Public Radio jumped on board, uh, and so we took, uh, we took, I think it was 52 the first time, so 52 Strong was our first series, uh, where we talked with uh, leaders from the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s. We, we got access, direct access to people who were in the movement, uh, people who had uh, been at the lunch counters, who had sat in, who were on the freedom rides, uh, and so we gave them voice again, uh, uh, through Utah Public Radio, and it was spectacular. And the great thing about that is is the idea from this was not just that I take this on the road, and I love working with Utah Public Radio, but that my students uh, engage in this and produce the stories as well. So, uh, so, yeah, it's been great. We have another series, which is Roots of Brazil, but maybe we'll talk about that at a different time. I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, no, no, I think we could talk about it right now. Uh, so okay. Roots of Brazil, that's interesting to the extent that, I mean, they're, Brazil uh, has, you know, various, uh, very serious race issues itself. So it is, um, I think, I think as we've described it, it is a very complex space. Um, it is, it has a different perspective, uh, I think, on race than the United States does. It has a different history with it. It has a different demographic makeup. Um, so if you look back into the history of it, you see that uh, it has actually the largest, it was the largest slave port of all of the Americas. It was the last country in the Americas to eradicate slavery. Uh, and so the makeup of, of the population of Brazil is, is incredibly diverse and incredibly interesting. And so what we did is we went to a place called Salvador, um, which is the colonial capital. It's one of the major slave ports. Um, and so the population there is incredibly uh, diverse, incredibly complex. 
Um, and so we spent three weeks down there with students. So the idea was that we simply do what we had done with the Civil Rights Pilgrimage, is we would take Utah Public Radio microphones with us, and we would engage individuals from the community down there. And, uh, and uh, I mean, you can go to upr.org. Roots of Brazil link is on there if you want to check it out. All of the episodes are, are live there, so you can stream them. Um, and uh, I think we produced via audio some really visually rich uh spaces Mm -hmm. right to think about it kind of in that way is you can imagine yourself via audio via radio in these incredibly colorful um complex amazing spaces um so that was a lot of fun um there's a lot of different Ted's a lot of different levels uh, going on here great radio of course that's the top thing great experiences for students um, and uh, great connection with community, in this case, with communities in Brazil. All that's going on, and that's uh, typical of uh, UPR. Absolutely. Uh, those kind of conversations are what we, we absolutely strive for. Uh, what, you can actually email UTOM, right, at upraccess at gmail.com. That's right. That's right. So you can be part of the, uh, the conversation as well. You can call in as well. Today we are, however, requesting that you call in to make your donation to help us support these programs at 800-826-1495 or online at upr.org. Let's uh, take another break. When we come back, we'll hear from uh, Sherman Alexi. We had a chance to uh, talk with him in October of last year when he, was, uh, when he came to uh, USU as part of the Tanner Talks uh, series uh, from the College of Humanities and Social uh, Sciences. And uh, so, you know, what a treat. Sherman Alexi was sitting where you are right now, uh, Jason Gilmore. And, uh, um, you know, as you can imagine, uh, lively uh, discussion <laughs> he is spectacular. In, in, <laughs> ensued. Uh, so we'll have a, an excerpt from that uh, following this break. I listen to Bullseye because it always includes real talk with interesting artists who I might never have heard of otherwise. Each interview includes real honesty from these artists that I don't hear anywhere else. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'll talk to filmmaker Spike Lee and the creators of the new HBO series, High Maintenance, on the next Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Join us Saturday afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Bridger Folk Music Society, presenting Three Hat Trio, Music inspired by the deserts of southern Utah. Saturday evening, September 17th in Logan. Tickets and information at bridgerfolk.org. It's the best of Access Utah on the program today. All week we've been doing best of, and uh, we've uh, because it's the fun drive, and we're looking for your support uh, for the program. And, uh, by the way, the place you can go is 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or upr.org, upr.org. I have with me Ted Twinding in studio and Jason Gilmore. Um, Jason, maybe you can help set up the Sherman Alexi. Uh, you were telling me just off air that uh, you were on the committee that uh, helped bring Sherman Alexi to campus. I guess that's probably a no-brainer if, you, if he's willing to come. Yeah. Um, yeah, Sherman Alexi is just a spectacular individual. He, he just brings... Uh, unique perspectives onto the world, but he—I I actually think he's one of those unique voices that actually uh, helps us bridge some of our differences, right? Human differences. He comes from a reservation background, um, but he also lives in Seattle, Washington, um, and he just has those—I would say—unifying kind of moments that just make us realize how how incredibly com or how incredibly uh, alike we are. So, yeah. yeah, it was great to have him. A fascinating background, of course. If you're not familiar with him, uh, his 20 books include Reservation Blues and The Lone Ranger and Tonto Fistfight in Heaven and uh, the award-winning, widely banned young adult novel The Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian. That won him the 2007 National Book Award for Young People's uh, Literature. Um, I recommend his Twitter account, by the way, as well. He's <laughs> he's uh, he's a f- frequent tweeter. Is that the... the and interesting. <laughs> very, very interesting. Um, so anyway, I believe this uh, clip uh, from our hour together begins with a with a film clip, and then we get into a discussion, if I remember correctly. Here's uh, Sherman Alexi. This is how to write the great American Indian novel. All of the Indians must have tragic features, tragic eyes, arms, 
Their hands and fingers must be tragic when they reach for tragic food. The hero must be a half-breed, half-white and half-Indian, preferably from a horse culture. He should often weep alone. There's a lot going on there. Just that 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 short passage. It, it's funny because you're you're making fun of the perceptions and and playing into maybe how some Indians play into see the perceptions themselves. as well, see themselves as well. <laughs> yeah. uh, and you know, uh, nothing's the, the more, stereotypes. Nothing's more funny than an Indian who takes himself seriously. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but there but there's melancholy there too. Oh, there. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, we're so examined. And we're so ubiquitous in the culture. I mean, right now, if we turned on the TV here in Logan, Utah, and went through the channels, I'm sure there are 10 or 12 images of Native Americans right now on on TV. So we're everywhere in the popular culture and yet have no political power, no social power, no economic power. Uh, uh, So it's weird to be everywhere and almost universally admired, but also subjected to such stereotypes, subjected to such racism and oppression. So we live this incredibly bipolar life that, that is maddening. And if you weren't funny about it, it would kill you quickly. Mm-hmm. So is that the role of humor? Because it be, it, some of your oh, books are very I mean, funny. Laugh out loud. I, I think great humor necessarily comes out of great pain mm-hmm. in any culture. I yeah. think the funniest people are usually the ones who are the most screwed up. Mm-hmm. You make a connection between Indians and Jews. Yes, uh, uh, definitely being you know subjected to genocide uh, and, and genocided in the 20th century. Uh, people love to think of the Native American experience, the wars and the genocide and the oppression as being a pre-20th century experience, but it's not the case. In fact, most of the genocidal activity, the pure genocide, in terms of removing children from their homes, from their tribes, in terms of cultural eradication, in terms of dispersing Native Americans away from their communities, all of the stuff that the United Nations calls genocide, most of that was taking place into the 20th century. And in fact, into the 1970s, children were still being taken from their tribes and their families, and Native American women were still being sterilized without their permission into the 1970s. So mm. genocide didn't end for Native Americans until about 1976. And some people would object to the word genocide. They'd be wrong. So you, you, you call it genocide, ethnic cleansing? Yes, exactly what it was, by all the definitions of the United Nations uh, Treaties on Genocide, mm-hmm. which was uh, created in part by the United States in the aftermath of World War II. Yeah. You point out at a certain point, uh, you know, in the late 19th century, uh, you know, American Indians came close to being we were close. wiped out. We had a couple hundred thousand people left. Mm-hmm. Uh, we almost blinked out. And, and certainly that was partly due to disease in large part due to disease, but it was also the concentrated efforts of the United States, military, government, and churches mm-hmm. to uh, eliminate us, not just physically, but culturally. See, that's a thing that people don't think about in terms of genocide. They only think in terms of bodies, of dead bodies. They don't think about in terms of language and culture. This this country actively tried to destroy and eliminate Native American cultures. Mm-hmm. And that, uh, I don't think that is made clearer in the history books. They actively tried to, you know, this was just a, it's portrayed as, uh, not a byproduct, but, you know, manifest destiny, and this is just what happened. Well, uh, you know, I've heard this argument, it's interesting, uh, that it doesn't get called genocide, or people don't think it's genocide, because we fought back. Mm. You know, which is a variation on Ben Carson's, you know, the Holocaust would have, you know, happened because Jewish folks weren't armed and they weren't resisting. Of course, they resisted in massive numbers. But uh, uh, I think uh, a big part of it is simply being so patriotic, being so romantic about the United States that you can't admit to any of its flaws. Mm-hmm. And it has profound flaws that, that, uh, in its foundations that have uh, contemporary repercussions. Including as sacred a figure as Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln ordered the, ma- the largest mass executions of people in the United States. Uh, he, killed, he ordered killed uh, 36 Sioux Indians in Mankato, Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the great emancipator was also the great capital punisher. So do you think there, you know, that 
that's a that's a bad effect of deification of our, of our political figures, is it? Do, do we don't see the whole picture? You know, I wonder if, if because the United States is a European culture, is a European country, I wonder, I often wonder if the deification of our political leaders is because of the deification of royalty that existed in so much of European history, mm-hmm. that we look at our political leaders, even in the United States, as royalty. Mm-hmm. And, and, and uh, uh, certainly because there's so much money involved, we certainly – I mean, the only reason Trump is a candidate is because he's a billionaire. There's, mm. He has not distinguished himself in any other way other than the fact that he was born into money and, and has money. Uh, so what is that if not the deification of American royalty? Mm. You, uh, you have a funny, funny poem. There's a bit of melancholy there as well about Mount Rushmore. <laughs> <laughs> and you also comment on the crazy horse. Yeah, well, Crazy Horse never allowed right. itself to be photographed, so uh, in fact, avoided it, like mm-hmm. ran away from photographers. So, uh, which was easier those days because they took so much longer to develop the mm-hmm. photos. But uh, and they're making a statue of him, which is completely his image, capturing his image, which is something he never wanted to have. So, uh, it's it's an iconic, completely misrepresentative notion of who Crazy Horse is and was. Mm-hmm. And the thing is. Based on how he's disc- how he looked, you know, this statue is really looking like a a very, uh, very iconic Sioux Indian with the huge cheekbones and the and the you know big headdress and and this magnificent statue. When in fact, Crazy Horse was pretty small and was actually described as pale skinned and light haired. Mm. So, uh, you know, I imagine Crazy Horse had some uh, white settlers in his uh, genetic past. Right. So, you know, but that statue wouldn't be nearly as interesting uh, to have this uh, a multiracial Native American hero. Uh, you know, the complications of biology aren't as interesting as, you know, a giant big nosed Sioux Indian statue to, to measure up against Mount Rushmore. Uh, so taking what you just said, um, you know, mixed race, uh, and increasingly America is turning brown. Uh, is Do you see that as a as a leading to the positive direction that we're going to get past some of these well, the racial hang Well, it's always been brown. Uh, the world history is brown and mixed and, and, and uh, uh, cosmopolitan and diverse. Uh, I ch- everybody, I want everybody to do a, a genealogy test, a DNA test. You'll be shocked at what you find, you know, uh, in terms of your actual history, your genetic history, as opposed to the history that's been passed down to you. I don't think there'd be a greater lesson to any individual than to see the contradiction between what their genetics say about their past and what family history says about their past, mm-hmm. because people lie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so a lot of our assumptions about who we are are based on old family lies. I mean, for me, for yeah. instance, I'm supposed to be about 90% Native American, According to uh, who, who, according to who begat who, who begat who begat who, but you know I have way too much chest hair to be ninety percent Indian. <laughs> way too much chest hair. There's there's some Slavic people in my past. <laughs> That's Sherman Alexi, um, and uh, had a chance to talk with him in studio here in October of last year. Uh, when the Tanner Talk series from College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University brought uh, brought him in. Uh, that's a fun conversation. Um, yeah. And uh, Sherman Lexi, one of the important voices on many topics, but on race. Indeed. Yeah. Um, Ted Twining, this, uh, we hope, you agree, is worth supporting, this kind of conversation. I absolutely agree. Um, and I hope you do out there as well. Uh, 800-826-1495 or online at upr.org. Uh, there's a lot of different levels. And perhaps you're thinking, I don't know if I can I can bear the brunt of $240 a year. I don't know if I can bear the brunt of 120 a year. Um, if you're in a position to and uh, this is something worth supporting, reach out. Give us a call. Talk to us. We take your comments at the end and we don't just throw those comments away. We talk about them at staff meeting. We agonize over them until the next pledge drive when you get to call again and tell us again what you think. We care very much about you and uh, our sense of community. We are absolutely responsible to you. Give us a call at 800-826-1495, perhaps $96, which is only $3 a month. That's about a coffee or a hot chocolate or um, your your favorite your favorite morning beverage, if you will. Uh, 800-826-1495. 800-826-1495 or upr.org, upr.org. 
maybe another behind-the-scenes uh, glimpse. Um, I, I try to prepare thoroughly for every interview. Um, Sherman Alexi, uh, I, I took, I became an expert on Sherman Alexi. It's, it was, it was more than usual. I think I felt pressure because this was uh, my college bringing him in. And these were people that I rubbed shoulders with on a daily basis. And if I blew this interview, I was going to hear about it. Um, so uh, I, some of the knowledge has faded, but for a brief time, for a couple of days there, maybe no one else in the world knew as much about Sherman Alexi other than Sherman Alexi. Um, but uh, it did, did make it a lot of fun to... Uh, to talk with to talk with him, and um, s- some things I learned about Sherman Alexi that that really made it you know increase my respect for him. He he is uh, a major voice, and I, I love the fact that he's not he's not serious all the time. He he uses his sense of humor to further the conversation. Yeah, I I really see him as as uh, somebody that can connect with anyone regardless of their perspective. He really kind of brings in he brings in the human component to thing right and i think a lot of the time we can get overly analytical about things and he is just delightful um and he's making you think about difficult important things and and making it have a delightful end to it or at least something that makes you feel like you're you're part of it right Mm -hmm. instead of standing outside kind of looking in um yeah it was spectacular i'd i'd like to jump in just really quick and and just make a quick comment um so I, I, we were talking about uh, the importance of, of public radio, um, and you were saying that uh, you are beholden to your listeners. And I want to really, I mean, I study media, I'm a professor of communication. I really want to make the case here that um, it is incredibly important that a radio, that, that any media source would be beholden to people. Right. If you look at any other source that's out there, they're beholden to their uh, editors, to their uh, the people who advertise. Right here, you are stressing over, thinking about, trying to uh, give the product to people that they want. Right, and I think that is just spectacular. Right, that is really where uh, the idea of a democratic. Uh, press, right? The function of a press that actually helps our democracy instead of hurts our democracy is in public radio. Uh, so I just wanted to add to that. I think that's that's something that I don't think people really necessarily see the connection to, but is incredibly important. Um, and so I'll make a pitch. That's why <laughs> that's why people should um, should pledge, right? That's why people should invest in this is because it helps us continue. And it doesn't just help us continue on. It helps us continue bringing better and better, more in-depth perspectives on things. And I say us because I'm a part of Utah Public Radio. That's right. That's right. You have standing as as a member, (laughs) as a fellow member of Utah Public Radio. So the the way to contact us again, uh, Ted. 800-826-1495 or online at upr.org. And we're hoping that your call is next. Uh, let's uh, conclude the program with a portion of my conversation uh, from April of 2015. Uh, artist Paul Vanus was visiting USU as part of the Artsy STEM project. It's a very interesting project uh, going on, uh, uh, interface between arts and STEM. And uh, Paul Vanus is a visual artist. He, he does some very interesting projects, and one of his interests is uh, race and DNA. Let's hear a, a portion of my conversation with Paul Vanus. Uh, I wonder if you could, uh, we've been talking about your suspect inversion center. What if you could describe this? Yeah, so imagine, if you if you will, a, sort of a laboratory table that's sort of shaped in this sort of, uh, it's sort of a semicircle uh, in a gallery space uh, with myself and uh, my performance collaborator, Carrie Sheehan, sort of actively uh, extracting DNA, you know, my, I'm like swishing salt water around in my mouth, spinning it into, into um, test tubes, extracting bits from that, heating it, you know, putting it into machines called PCR, running it in gels, uh, while, while audience members can come around and sort of ask us questions about any part of the process. Uh, they can ask us about literally the scientific stuff. They can ask us about the kind of social meanings of this case. They can ask us about some of the kind of legal proceedings and what they meant. And the idea was is that, you know, um, the idea was is that 
the kind of technical and the scientific and the social and the legal and the, these things kind of tangle together in these really kind of complex imbroglios and to somehow try to like separate them into like this is a scientific question, this is a social question, this is a pop culture question. That was somewhat artificial. So the idea of this lab called the Suspect Inversion Center was that this was a place where any kind of complicated question could also be kind of considered, discussed, and would be a kind of open show and tell of these different processes of uh, DNA identification. And you're using your own DNA. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you are... Uh, uh, you're recreating, creating master copies of, of those courtroom images from 1995. That's interesting. You use your own DNA to. Yeah, I call this. I call this my my sort of artistic manifesto on this mm -hmm. is that uh, it's a manifesto of radical sameness. That we're all so much alike that um, I can basically make my. I can painfully reconstruct almost any type of a DNA image using my own DNA, mm. assuming that I have enough technologies at my disposal. Right, to to look like the images from from OJ. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's kind of there's this tradition in the arts uh, called uh, creating master studies, and you know you'll sometimes see people in museums, sort of like up by a, a Mark Rothko or a, you know Jackson Pollock, and they'll be trying to sort of literally recreate that painting. And by recreating it, you come to understand that artist. You come to understand the, 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 the moment that they're working in. So I was trying to do the same for the DNA fingerprint. The, right. How could I really understand what was going on here unless I painfully reconstructed it? Right. Which leaves open, one of the questions it leaves open is how open to manipulation or accident or whatever Yep. Is, is that actual DNA image being processed in, say, the FBI lab? Yeah. So, again, I mean, with a lot of this work, I'm also I'm, I'm putting forth this idea that the DNA image is plastic, right? The DNA is a plastic medium uh, of representation like other ones that artists might have used, right? Think about photography. Photography is one seeing as like being this this total reflection, this, this almost too close. Some people didn't like to be photographed because it was somehow taking their essence. You know, uh, it, it was seen as totally authoritative until artists started monkeying around with it and mm -hmm. showing you could make double exposures, or you could stretch it, you could do all these different things to it. In a way, I'm, I'm proposing that maybe DNA is a bit similar, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe that DNA is also plastic. Maybe there are thousands of different ways of manipulating it. And maybe we've, you know, maybe you're kind of shutting it down too early. By by thinking of some kind, this image is some kind of an essence of a, a total essence of our identity. Mm -hmm. Do you, having done this, do you come away with less faith in the justice system? Do do you get that question at, at installations? Yeah, sure. I mean, again, I'm I think I'm somebody that's always most comfortable when when there's uh, when all possibility and all meanings are not shut down. So when I hear these things, you know, that there's no, that this is 100% efficacy and that, that a DNA image represents one individual to the, you know, uh, to the exclusion of, you know, hundreds of billions, I do get a little bit suspicious when you hear that, you know, every so often in court cases there, there are mistakes and, you know, how come these aren't calculated in as part of the, part of the probabilities that we hear about when we hear about how great DNA fingerprinting is. And, and there's certainly some uh, uh, recent events in, you know, with the Department of Justice that make you also want to kind of be a little bit question, questionable, questioning a little bit. Uh, uh, ballistics, right? We used to think that, you know, an expert could tell uh, the make of a gun, of a, a bullet fired from a gun from, you know, anything else available. And we've since found out that all those all those court cases are now kind of trying to be reopened. Um, same with hair follicle analysis. Mm -hmm. You know that, you know these things. Uh, these things often are not capable of producing absolute certainty, mm -hmm. and so like, this is this is why I'm kind of opening up a little bit too. I guess that's the bottom line. We we shouldn't take absolute certainty. It's just it's it's still beyond a reasonable doubt. That's still what you have to. <laughs> that's still what you have to have to do, right? Yeah, I, I mean, I just, I just think, every, and part of this is also that I think the more the, the more demystified these processes are, the better we can understand how how seriously you take them, right? And and if things are always mystified, if if people don't know the kind of techniques behind things, if if everything is kind of taking place uh, sort of outside the public eye, and we're just kind of left with a glitzy image and, and a spokesperson saying, you know, um, <laughs> how damning the image is. Uh, you know, 
we're kind of in a bad spot as a public. So I mean, a lot of this work is, you know, is also trying to kind of just put out some of the basics into into a public forum. That's Paul Vanus, a visual artist. He was here at USU as part of the Artsy STEM project. Very interesting project, and our thanks to him. That concludes the program for today. I hope that you will support this kind of programming. 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or upr.org, upr.org. Thanks, uh, Jason um, and T- Ted. Utah Public Radio is a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, also heard at upr.org.